Today we continue, as you can see up on the screen, and uh, the story we're tracking along in the Bible, kind of the 31 major themes of Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. I'm not going to recap everything again. Like I said, it would probably get too long if I kept doing that. But last week we looked at God working with His people and giving them the call to represent them on the earth. Um, God had rescued them from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, used Moses as their leader, and He calls them out, and they are now coming into um, the wilderness and, and, and a part of that wandering that we're going to look more in detail today. But he called them a kingdom of priests or representatives to reveal him and his kingdom. He gives them the Ten Commandments, as we looked at last week, um, as a moral standard to show that, that he is different from all the other gods, and he's calling the people to be different. Not better than, but different. That a people that belong to God. That he is the one, the true God. And also that this is our call. Different places that in scripture we had that same calling as a kingdom of priests that God spoke to them in the Old Testament. We are called that in the New Testament. Peter says that we're going to look at that scripture a little bit later. That we are a chosen generation of royal priesthood to be God's representatives on the earth. Paul also calls us in one place ambassadors. And that is representatives of Christ to the world that we live in, to our sphere of influence, to the place that God has called each of us. Whether you work, wherever you go to school, whoever your friends are, that's your sphere of influence. God has called you as his ambassador of Jesus to represent him and his kingdom and, that, that, and his work in and through us, that people would see God's work in us. Again, not that we are better than, but that we belong to Christ and that his work is evident in our lives. Peter said this, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. And so God's representatives to point people to Jesus always. So anything good that they see in us, it would be the work of Christ. So we pick up the story today of Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, in the desert. And they are on their way to the land that God has promised them, the promised land. God had, remember, God had spoken that covenant to Abraham. He said, he showed him and he said, I'm going to bring your descendants to this place. So now we have somewhat of a fulfillment. They are leaving Egypt. They are on their way to the promised land. But we don't have them going straight to the promised land. And last week I briefly talked about how the people grumbled and complained against God, against Moses um, after having seen some pretty amazing miracles. So today we're going to look at that in more depth. And we're going to look also as we see the children of Israel, we're going to ask God to take a look at our own hearts. And you can see from the title, it's the purpose of the wilderness. And you will see as we track along what was happening in the people and, and their wrong responses that God has a plan in the wilderness. And so we're going to take a look at that. And so here's this message on complaining and grumbling. And uh, usually when I'm preparing a message like this, I get to pass the test myself or fail it, which I did the other day. Let me tell on myself a little bit. Um, isn't it amazing when you are, you know, you're, you're preparing, you got your notes already, and God, you know, speak to me and through me. I'd like to say that I've passed all these tests, but I get to preach and share with you, share in the sufferings of, 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 of you as well. And uh, so our hot water heater went out. And that's just such a joy, isn't it? It's leaking everywhere. The towels are getting wet. And uh, thank God for Nate Furkenstad who came over and helped save the day. But um, I ended up getting a new one. But, I, you know, you wake up and there's water everywhere. I just wanted to start kicking stuff. Have you ever been there? Can I be honest? 
you know, you just are so frustrated and it's like, you know, I, I don't have time for this and I've got other things that I'm going to do today. You know, I've, I've got a plan for my life today and it didn't include this. Have you ever been there? Can I get a witness from somebody? Don't, don't be too quiet now. You guys are sitting there real quiet like I'm the only one, so. But, you know, that, that just did not factor into the plan for my own life, your hot water heater going out. I had other things to do, and, and so my attitude, I'd like to say that I just got up and said, thank you, God, that, uh, for this and that, and I just look at it and at peace and kneel down by the hot water heater and just thank God for the trial for today. I didn't do that at all. I was just frustrated. I just wanted to kick stuff. Sorry. I, I, I kick people. I kick stuff. I, 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 don't, I don't take it out on people. I just want to kick in inanimate stuff. But isn't it easy to have the right attitude when things are going your way? We like predictability, don't we? We love things that, like, you know, especially in the comfort of our own life, we don't like things to change much. And it's easy to have the right attitude when things are going your way, but the test is when things, uh, when things are not going your way and you get the squeeze. It's that old adage, you know, it's like a you know, tube of toothpaste. You know, you squeeze it, whatever's in there is coming out. And so just a little revelation of what was in my own heart was coming out because those times are tested when we hit those so-called wilderness or desert or hard times. So most of the time, no one likes the wilderness and wandering. I mean, if, if you do like it, there might be other issues that you're dealing with, but nobody just looks forward to those things. Now, you can, when you get on the other side, sometimes you look back, and I've been there where you can see the benefit, right? And you can even thank God for it now that you're done with it. But when you're in the middle of it, it is very difficult. You hit those times and those seasons. It's hard to discern and figure out what God might be saying, what he's doing. And then we have to ask this question. Is there a purpose behind the wandering? Is there a purpose behind this hard season and this wilderness? And as we'll see today, the answer is absolutely. And I think that you will see that as a major theme in all of Scripture. Seasons of hard times, suffering, preparing, and planning for what's ahead. Now, sometimes we can, these things are relatively, those, those wilderness times can be relatively short, like a hot water heater going out. Um, and, and, and in the big scope of things, I know that's a very minor thing, so, you know, I know you guys are probably thinking, what a baby. Um, that's okay. It was a big deal that day. But sometimes it can be relatively short. Sometimes it can be long. I mean, sometimes you're, you know, it's, it's what you're dealing with in this season. And some people get a lifelong season of kind of wilderness. You think of people like Johnny Erickson Todd or Nick Vujicic, and I've mentioned them, where, you know, it's, it's a, you know, you're physically, you are limited, and it's somewhat of a wilderness, but they have found God. They found joy in the midst of it. But so wherever you're at, I don't want to minimize where you're at. Those seasons are very real. But wilderness times were a training and preparation and test of the heart. And you'll see that in Scripture, you see that in our own lives, to develop and mold people to be who God has called them to be. And it's the same with us. So one of the greatest tests of wilderness and wandering times is the attitude of our hearts. And we're told in Scripture, I'm going to look at the first uh, slide here from Proverbs 4.23. This is one of the biggest tests in Scripture. Above all else, guard your heart. And that is the word of the Lord for us today, no matter where you find yourself. Above all, guard your heart. Everything you do flows from it. 
the inside, what's going on in that internal struggle. And that in, even, you know, when you make a presentation of yourself and you have the happy face and you're saying everything's great and deep down inside, in your heart, you need to guard your heart because everything, everything, as it says, you do flows from it. And so the two major things that precede complaining as we guard our hearts are this, and we'll see this as in the children of Israel. The two major things that precede complaining as we guard our hearts, number one is being critical. Being critical, picking apart others, picking apart your situation, seeing things with the lens of a negative eye. Like kind of almost like you just set yourself up like I knew this was going to happen and I, and you just, and I, I say that sometimes. I'm like, I, I just, when I'm, especially when I'm fixing things and I've told my, my story before, things that should take 15 minutes that take me five hours. And I catch myself being very critical in those times going, I should have planned on five hours because I knew that it was going to be this way. And I see through this lens of being critical, we must guard our hearts from being critical, picking others apart, picking ourselves apart, picking God apart. And the second one is discontent, never satisfied. Never satisfied. That's what simply it means to be discontent. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4, he said, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. Isn't that amazing? I've learned to be content in every situation because he understood this. God is sovereign. God is in control. He sees what's going on. He lives, and we, we've been talking about as we tracked along in the stories, the upper story and the lower story. God is at work even when we can't see it, even when we can't perceive it. And so he is working in the upper story and even in the lower story here on earth when we can't perceive what he's doing. And so Paul says, I've learned this secret to be content in every situation, whether you know, hard times or good times, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm well or sick, because guess what? And he ends this because he goes, I can do all these things because why? It's the strength of Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's where we find that passage is right after this idea of learning to be content. And so guard your hearts. Are you critical? Are you discontent? As we look at the children of Israel, these are just some questions that we have to look at our own hearts because, again, we can look at them and look at them even with a critical eye and say, well, if I was there, I would have never done what they did, and we would have because our hearts are easily deceived. Are you critical? Are you discontent with others, your job, your spouse, your parents, your family, your circumstances, your church? That's why Paul said, keep your eye, heart and your eyes on the things above and not just the earthly things. So as we look at Israel, let's look at ourselves. And so with this idea, our attitude is an essential player when it comes to wilderness and hard times and those wandering times. We must guard our hearts. Here's a couple of key points here, and they're not up on the screen, but I want you to hear these. Having a good and right attitude, and this is number one, having a good and right attitude won't exempt you from wilderness times, but it can determine the length and the severity of the wilderness, as we see in the Israelites. This journey from Egypt to the promised land was about a two-week journey. And you could, you could say at the most, with that many people, about two million maybe, with getting supplies and all that they had to do, at the most a month. They were there for 40 years. And so having a good and right attitude won't exempt you from hard times. We all deal with those. But again, our attitude 
can determine the length and the severity of the wilderness. And so God sovereignly puts us in wilderness times to train us, to equip us, and to humble us, to make us more like Jesus and more available as his representative. Secondly, God does not exist to help us become more self-reliant. Christianity is not some other means by which we can be a little more humanistic. You know, it's like the world says, well, you know, I've got this, and Christianity, you have your thing. That Christianity, no, Christianity is the thing. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But God does not exist to help us become more self-reliant. We don't use God to help us on our way and then forsake him and take control and say, okay, thanks God for that. Thanks for the little peace. I'll take it from here. As we talked earlier about and we sang earlier about surrender, that's what it means. Christianity can't be understood outside of the context of being completely and totally surrendered to Jesus. We're in desperate need of God and we must be fully reliant on him. And so he's good, we are not. He's powerful, we are not. And sometimes those wilderness times should remind us of how much we need him. As the writer in Scripture says, in him we live and we breathe and we have our being. But as we'll see with the people of Israel, it doesn't always work out like that. As we look at them, again, let's examine our own hearts and our own attitudes and repent where we need to repent and surrender to him in a new way today. But as we pick up the story, Israel now is in the wilderness, and the next step in the process should be, okay, they're going to go directly in the promised land to start being a blessing and start being who God's called them to be, be God's representatives on the earth. That's what he's called them to be. You're a kingdom of priests. Let's do this. Boom, you're there. But their hearts weren't totally committed to God. It's interesting where they were at in Egypt, where they were slaves, they were in bondage, but they saw how the Egyptians go. The Egyptians had many gods that you would control. You know, they felt like that they controlled the gods. And that's the ultimate form of idolatry is we ultimately put ourselves in the place of God. And, and, and those Egyptian gods or other gods are gods that we, you, you appease. Well, if I do this, then that God is obligated to do this. And they began to approach God, the living God, that way. But their hearts weren't totally committed. They, they were glad about his miracles. They loved to see his power. He rescued them supernaturally so many times, and it's like, well, that works for me. As long as you're doing supernatural, big, huge, miraculous stuff, we like you. But the problem was is that they were just committed to God for what he could do for them and not for who he was. They weren't fully surrendered. As you can see, that they were more interested in pleasing themselves than pleasing God. They were more interested in blessing themselves than blessing others. But that needed to change, and God was going to begin to change their hearts and make them his representatives. So God takes the people into the wilderness for a time of testing and proving. He uses the wilderness experience to prepare them to be a blessing to the world, and he does it here by allowing the Israelites to go through a time of hardship, to expose the darkness in their hearts, and confronts their selfishness. And so there is purpose in the wilderness. It tests our hearts. When you're going through those hard times, even when you fail like I did the other day, that is God's mercy because then you have an opportunity to repent and say, God, I'm really sorry for my attitude. And then he lovingly receives us. It's not like that he's got this emotional problem where he just pushes you away. He longs to bring us to himself. 
But have you ever noticed that, uh, uh, that when you go through hard times, that in that testing, you, you, you thought you were basically good until the hardship hits, and then you find out that you're not basically good. In fact, you kind of are rotten to the core. But the problem is, is that if we don't have the right response, then we spend you know, our energy justifying that it's okay that we get mad or we have a wrong attitude or we even have a wrong response to do whatever we want to do. We begin to justify it because we're going through a hard time. But deep down inside, you see that darkness surfacing and that something needs to change. And so we're going to look at Israel's heart and attitudes, and then we're going to close this thing by the purpose of the wilderness. And so that's what we will see in the story today. God exposed the depth of their selfishness and reveals their attitudes. And we'll look at some of the wrong attitudes that they had during those wilderness times from Scripture and what kept them wandering. Allow God to search your own heart today as well. And so the first attitude, and we'll look at it on Scripture, is they were unthankful. They were unthankful. And so if you're tracking along and you've been reading or you're familiar with this story, you know the Bible tells us that God's people were hungry and so God graciously and miraculously provides a bread-like substance every morning with the dew called manna. Here's what it says in Numbers. It says, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burning among them and consumed some of them on the outskirts of the camp. The rabble, or just a group with them, began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. This soup, but now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but manna. And so the people, God is supernaturally providing them food. And the people went out, they would gather it. They would grind it into a hand mill and cook it either in a pot or they would make loaves of bread. And it, and it says this in, in, in uh, Numbers 11, 7 through 9, that it tastes something made with olive oil. I mean, are you, you know, we can look at them again, and I think it's God gives us this so that we can look at our own heart, but they have food from the sky. Do you understand? I mean... Wouldn't that just freak you out? And they thought it was cool at first. I mean, you get up in the morning and God is sending food from heaven. Like miraculously, supernaturally. Like cloudy with a chance of meatballs kind of thing. You know, food from heaven. And they think that, oh, this is amazing. It's amazing provision. But it doesn't take long. They go, you know, they come crossing their arms and go, manna again, really? You would think that they would just be completely freaked out by saying, God in heaven loves us. He's raining down food from heaven, this amazing provision. And it's very easy to get comfortable with that. They had already seen God do miracles to help rescue them. Now he's raining food from heaven. And isn't it amazing how we're so amazed at things at first and how that can get so old if we don't have the right attitude? I mean, for crying out loud, we have phones now that we can look at the internet, talk to somebody, take pictures, take movies, and then when we have a little glitch, we can say it's a piece of junk. But when they first made it, we're like, I can't believe we can do all this stuff with our phones. And then a year goes by, and I need the new one. This thing's a piece of junk. It's so easy for us, isn't it? And here God is raining down supernatural food from heaven 
And they are just, you know, they're out in the wilderness and they are just excited at first. Look at all this. And then now it gets very easy where, go, really, a manna again? Thanks a lot, God. Really? And when you stop seeing what God is doing, you notice that in the scripture, then the old life begins to look appealing. They start talking about the food that they had in Egypt. They, you know, we had all this food. But yeah, you guys were slaves. You were building stuff for other people. You were working day in, day out. You were about to die because of the slave labor. And all of a sudden, bondage and slavery look good because I'm a little uncomfortable and God's raining down the same food that we had, we've been having. And all of a sudden, the old life begins to look appealing. Guard your hearts. How does that apply to us today? You know, we can... If we, we get into those wilderness times, those hard seasons, and it's hard to perceive what God's doing, all of a sudden our old life, that old life of, of sin, that old life of, you know, it looks appealing. And, and, and the Bible even says, yeah, that sin is enjoyable for a season, but it leads to destruction. And, and then all of a sudden sin and bondage, that looks more fun. And it's like, no, you don't have freedom. You don't have true freedom there. And so you would trade freedom for a better lunch, basically. But you'll notice in the scripture, not everyone here is unhappy. It's just a small group. Do you see that? There was a small group, but they begin to incite everyone else to complain. Complaining is contagious. That's why it says in the Bible, it's one of the things God hates. I mean, that, that, that strong word, hatred. It's one of the seven sins. It says God hates those that sow discord. You know what's sowing discord? It's complaining and then causing other people to gravitate toward complaining. It says God hates it. And can, complaining can be very contagious. And so this small group, they begin to just kind of put little seeds of being critical, put little seeds of complaining in other people. And then all of a sudden, the whole group is saying, man, I can't believe we have a manna. And the day before, they were very excited about it because this has been infecting the whole group. God provides them, and they're not happy. It's not good enough. They may not realize that what they're saying is, we don't care what you've done for us, God. We don't care how compassionate it seems like you are or how miraculous you are. It's not good enough. And so this lack of thankfulness, like hitting their knees every day and saying, God, thank you for the manna. I can't believe that you're doing this for us. And you see God's response is this fear of the Lord where there were some that, you know, it says his anger was aroused and then fire came and burned some of them. And this would be his response, a holy God coming into contact with unholiness. And so do we focus on what we don't have? Are we thankful for what we do have? When we're going through the wilderness, it's easy to not be thankful for what God has given us. And I encourage you, be mindful today. What has God given you? What has God done in you and through you? Focus on that. Second wrong attitude is, is, is this, and you can see the progression here. If unthankfulness goes unchecked for a time, it will lead to a feeling of entitlement. They feel entitled. Now, I'm not sure how in the world they got here because they were slaves in Egypt, but for some reason they felt like God owed them something. And there again, I think maybe it was 
having been exposed in Egypt to their, how they dealt with their gods because their gods, again, you would make these sacrifices and then you would say, well, you, now you owe me. And so when you start being unthankful, you will go into an idea of entitlement that I'm owed something, like it was God's job to make them happy. But God never promised to make them happy. What was he doing? He was making them holy. He was making them his people. And you would think that after all the powerful miracles and rescue that God did for them, they wouldn't feel the sense of entitlement. You would think that they would be so humbled and say, we're just glad that God has called us to be a part of it. But maybe it was because they thought that, you know, again, that they obeyed God and that he now owes them. I've done this, now God, you're obligated to do this for me. You can see it in the manna. We deserve something more than manna. Give us other food to eat. We deserve more. God doesn't owe us anything. My question is, are we walking with him today and serving him for the right reasons? Because again, I mean, it doesn't even matter if you've walked with Christ a long time. If you don't guard your hearts, you can have this turn where you feel the sense of entitlement. Are you walking with him for, the, for what he can do for you? Because if so, then that means you're not truly walking with him. That's not a place of surrender. If we love, we serve, we give for ulterior motives, for what we deserve in return, then we're doing it for the wrong reasons. Because here's the awesome thing. and Here's what God told Abraham. He said, I am your exceeding great reward. When you walk with Jesus, guess what you get? Jesus, he's enough. He is the reward. Now, if we get benefits with that, if we get blessed in other ways, thank God for it. But we're not owed it because we get Jesus. But it also manifests in us when we think that something is beneath us, like serving. That's why Jesus came to be, that's why he said the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. He said, yes, I'm a king in a kingdom, but I, here's how my kingdom is going to exist. I'm a servant, and I've called you to be a servant. But if we don't get this, what we say is we begin to criticize things that we're asked to do. I'm too good for this. God, do you know how awesome I am? I can be using this. I have this gifting, and Lord, you could really use me in this area. And it happens to be on stage. You know, that's usually how it manifests. But those other things are beneath me. Lord, I don't really feel called to clean. I don't really feel called to serve. Well, then you don't feel called to follow Jesus because that's what he did. This might be okay for other people, but not for me. God, thank you for making me so incredible to use me for the masses. If we're doing that with that entitlement, we have fooled ourselves. He does not need us, but he loves us. Third wrong attitude. When these go unchecked, and you can see again what happens in Israel is control. If complainers and those entitled don't get their way, they then start to take control. A few chapters later, God tells Moses to send up the 12 spies to see firsthand what the promised land is like. You know the story. He picks 12 spies, send them. What happens? You would think that they came back and 
And they, here's the report they give. They, 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 they give an initial good report. They found it was flowing with milk and honey. That means, you know, it's, it's a land of prosperity. It's everything that we could ever dream of. It is awesome. It is a great promised land. But 10 of them did not focus on these things. They said, yeah, it's good, but here's the thing. It's awful. There's giants. There's armies. They're huge. We don't have a chance. We should just stay here. And God was not happy with that report at all. You do have Joshua and Caleb. We need some more Joshua and Caleb's. We need churches filled with Joshua and Caleb's. Because what did they do? They came back and they said, yes, we can take it. God has already promised us those giants are not too big because our God is bigger. We can take this. We should go. But you have the 10 saying it's fearful. We should stay. And then again, complaining and fear, those are contagious and they start affecting the camp. So Numbers 14, 1 through 4, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. This is after they get the report. They're not listening to Joshua and Caleb that things, you know, we should take it. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. Again, they're looking back saying, if we, only we had died in slavery. Or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? And God had already made the promise that you will take this land. Our wives and our children would be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then they begin to take control. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We should choose a leader and go back into slavery and bondage. We should go backwards and not forwards. What were they doing? That unchecked complaining, that unchecked entitled attitude, you begin to start taking control. And so they're complaining at, at, at some points, in the, if you read the, 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 the scripture, they were going to kill Moses. They were going to, I mean, they were, they, were, they were getting very desperate. But they were not interested in doing God's will. God wasn't serving them and making them comfortable. See, the minute you seize control out of that kind of fear and out of complaining is the minute you stop serving God and you become self-serving. God's not doing things like I think he should do them. I'm in this hard time. I'm in this wilderness. I'm in this desert season of my life. And the tendency is to stop trusting God because we get a little desperate. We get a little anxious and we take control. I will drive the ship now. God, you get away from me. I'm going to drive this ship. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because this isn't working out. This is uncomfortable for me. God's not doing things like I think he should. I know better. That's what it begins to take when we, when we, I have a better plan. I don't agree with this, so I will take control. It's a lot of I, 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 me, 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 right? We put ourselves in control. We put ourselves in the driver's seat. And why is that dangerous? Because taking control is the utmost form of distrust. We don't trust the leaders. We don't trust what's going on. And ultimately, what we're saying is we don't trust God. That's why God said to them one time, remember, Moses intercedes for the people because God's going to bring judgment on the people. And it's a very, it's a very severe moment. And Moses pleads with God. And God says, them, says to Moses, he says, they're not complaining against you. This complaint is against me. They don't trust me. They are running from me. And so it's kind of, remember when you were learning to drive, you know, and you make your mom nervous and she grabs the wheel? Did anybody ever have that happen? Okay, just me. All right. 
I could drive with my dad. My dad was calm. He was very laid back. And my mom, on the other hand, was not. And if she got nervous, you know, I mean, there was all kinds of things. She's grabbing the steering. And, 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 there's, and we would just have this kind of like, mom, mom. You know, and, and I usually would pull over and say, you just drive. And sometimes we do that with God. We get nervous and we just grab the steering wheel and we begin to try to stick our feet in there. And he said, I've, I'm un, I've got it under control. Relax. Be at peace. Because ultimately, if that, does, if that it le- is left unchecked, taking control, the fourth wrong attitude is this, contempt. Let's go to the scripture. God says this. Numbers 14, how long will these people treat me with contempt? He's speaking after the people respond by taking control. Contempt is a very strong word. It means means this, to despise, dishonor, disgrace, and to willfully disobey. But here's what makes it dangerous It's not just simply disobedience. It's justified disobedience. You understand the difference here? Sometimes we disobey and we, you know, and it's it's wrong. We know it's wrong and and we respond to God in the right way. And that's why he loves us. He pours out his grace. But when we get dangerous is when we begin to justify the disobedience. That is to hold God into contempt. Basically, the authority, God in this case, he doesn't know what he's doing. And so it goes from that place of I'm struggling with trusting him to now I'm, uh, I'm accusing God of not knowing what he's doing. He's stupid and we're go- not going to obey. And what the ten spies called wisdom, God calls contempt. I have given you the land. I've made promises to you. God delivers his people with signs and wonders. He shows the spies the fruit of the land. The people decide that God doesn't know what he's talking about. And he's a fool to think that they can take the land. That's contempt. And so it goes beyond the first three attitudes, unthankful, entitled, or taking control. It is when you look down on someone or something with disdain. It's to diminish or disregard them because you think that you you know better than them. And that's what the Israelites were doing with God. Ultimately, contempt will, will lead you to unbelief. Because God asked them another question, if you're tracking along, it says, how long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all of the signs I've performed among them? How long will they not believe they refuse to believe? And that's what, again, what's dangerous is when it's willful. Not that you're just struggling with something. There's times when you're in the midst of it, you're struggling That's not what he's talking about here. This is just all of these attitudes, when they go unchecked, what it can lead us to. We have their story and somewhat of saying these are the extremes. If we don't walk in repentance and if we don't walk with Jesus and surrender our lives to him every day and these things go unchecked, these are the extreme things that can, can begin to creep into our lives. So it's not just unbelief, just where you're struggling to believe something. This is where you're holding and you have a contemptuous attitude. When it's willful. Because see, they, they had evidence of God's existence. They had his miracles that he performed. He spoke to them from heaven. He parted the Red Sea. He was raining food down from heaven. So it wasn't just a lack of faith. It wasn't 
that they had lack of evidence. It was a willful choosing of we will not believe. That's contempt. And then contempt leads us into the next wrong attitude. We'll look at the next slide. Rebellion. Deuteronomy 9.23, And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I have given you. So you have it. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You rebelled against him. Rebellion is open resistance. And again, these track, when you hold somebody in contempt, you begin to rebel against them. It's defiance of authority. Since I know better and I choose not to believe, I have the right to defy and resist authority. Now it becomes my right. Rebellion is my personal right to my own disobedience. You're not doing things like I want you to do. Now I will willfully defy you and resist you and justify it. That's why in the whole thing of complaining, that's why when God says I hate discord, I hate complaining, is because it's not as innocent as we like to think. When we're standing around and we're in that phone call or we're, what we would mask as, I have a concern that I would like to bring to your attention and it begins to begin to grumble and complain about something, it's not as innocent as what we'd like to think. Because if it goes left unchecked, it will lead to rebellion. It will lead to rejecting what God is doing and saying, I have the plan. I know what we're supposed to do and God doesn't know what he's talking about. That was the danger in, in, in the book of Judges. It says the people were doing what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of the, the ultimate form of, of this thing of rebellion. Everybody what was doing what was right in their own eyes. So then it's like, well, you have no right to tell me what to do. I'm doing what was right in my own eyes. You do whatever you think is right. And then it's just chaos and it's lawlessness. And then rebellion leads us into the last one is wickedness. Numbers 14, 27, how long, and this is God talking, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So God calls them wicked. That's, again, strong language. And so the implication here is clear. All of this has led them to becoming their own gods. And this is the ultimate form of wickedness. I'm my own master. I am my own Lord. I am my own Savior. I will do what is right in my own eyes. I don't need God. I don't need redemption. I've got it under control. I'll take care of myself. And when we're on the throne of our own lives, that's the greatest form of idolatry. The removal of God and the worship of ourselves. And so it all starts when... God took them into the wilderness to test their hearts. And so let's look at the last one. Is there purpose in the wilderness? Look at Moses. His, this is his farewell speech right before he is to die. And he's kind of revisiting some things about what has happened up to this point. And he says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years. And listen to this, the purpose of it. That's why we have to guard our hearts. It says to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. So there is purpose in the wilderness. 
And God uses those things to humble us so he can use us, to make us realize that we are weak and he is strong. As Paul said, Paul would go through these hardships and what it ultimately did, he said, I now understand the strength of God and my own weakness. Therefore, I will boast in my weakness so the power of Christ can be revealed in and through me. But he humbles us to get us to the point where we realize we need him and then we become useful for his kingdom. And so don't despise the wilderness. Don't despise the wandering. Don't despise the hard times. God is working. He deeply loves us. And again, this message I know is kind of almost somewhat heavy where you see the extreme cases. And I'm not saying, hey, you guys are walking. I'm saying guard your hearts. And I have to guard my own hearts. Just the the day-to-day things that we find ourselves doing, the mundane. Do we get to where we just are belly aching, complaining? Let God check that in your heart so then you go, God, I see that. I recognize that. And I want to make that right with you. Because he loves us deeply. But his job isn't just to make us happy, but it's to make us more like Jesus, to reveal him in our world. And when we see these things unchecked, it does lead us into places that we never thought we would go in our own hearts. And as I said at the beginning, the right attitude won't, having the right attitude won't exempt you from hardships and wandering, but it can determine the length and the severity. Because the heartbreaking part of this story, as if you track along with, with reading Scripture, is there was a whole generation of people that did not make it to the promised land. And it all boiled back to when they got on the other side of the, the Red Sea, and it all started with complaining. And then you see this progression Ultimately, where it, it was outright wickedness, and God says that whole generation, remember, he separated them. The younger generation will go. This generation will die in the wilderness. They will not inherit the promised land. They will not get what I promised them because they would not change their hearts. And that, that's the grievous thing. That's the hard thing to read. But God is holy, and he wants us to make, make us like Jesus. And so we check our hearts. And when God shows us something, out of his love, he shows us something. Repent, make that right. God, forgive me. Thank you for showing that to me because you love me. It's just when we bring discipline to our children, or we, you know, when God shows us that, it's not for your shame. It's not for you to, to make you feel worse about yourself. He's saying, I deeply love you. I have promises for you. Just like he said to them, I have a whole promised land. It is, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And you know, that's those, those words, not actual, you know, mountains of milk and mountains of honey, kind of where he's just saying it is a land that is good. It is everything that I promised for you. It's, it, it's for you. I am for you. And, and God sees you. And he says, I have a plan for your life. I am for you. But check your heart. And when he shows you that, just like when you discipline your children, you say, I'm doing it because I love them. I don't want them to just to, to run amok. But I bring discipline because I deeply love them. See God from that lens. And now these closing passages, we'll look at these and we'll close. God's purpose is for us. I shared this last week, but here's what Peter says. And this is a New Testament, a couple of New Testament passages. But he says, you're a chosen people. Isn't that a great, you are a chosen people. You can apply that to your heart personally. And we have a corporate calling, but you have a personal calling. You are a chosen person person by God. 
you're a royal priesthood. And this is language from this, at, from this time. Peter's repeating what God told the people of Israel. He said, you're, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Be my representatives on the earth. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession. I love that word, God's special possession. He chose us. It says that you might declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. As a reminder of that, we've all been called out of darkness. We all have darkness in us. We all are broken, and God has saved us. And he's called us out of that darkness into his wonderful light. And then you fast forward a couple verses. It says, dear friends, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires. Why does he say that? Because you're a holy people. You're chosen. Again, it's not following rules to get God to like you more. You love God and you please Him, then you live according to His moral standards because you're doing this out of love. I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. You could say the world that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Doesn't that sound like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Let your light shine before all men that they might see your good works and then glorify your Father in heaven. This is what we've been called to do. And that's why complaining and grumbling and, you know, when, when, you're, when you're living like that, it is living as the world. When, they, when you're sitting around and everybody is tearing down the boss, tearing down the teacher, tearing down and they're complaining and you're right in the middle of it, you're no different than they are. When all the boys at work and they're all tearing down how awful their wives are, or the ladies are just tearing down all their husbands, you're sitting in the middle, you're no different than they are. When somebody's complaining about the church and you're right in the middle, you're no different than they are. We have to come out and God has called us to be his lights on the, in the, on the earth, to be different. And so then God is calling us to live in relationship, surrender to him daily, allowing him to transform us so that we live good lives and that others see and glorify God. And then Paul says this in Philippians. The next one. Therefore, my beloved, you are the beloved of God. You know, you can just stop and read one word. Don't lose the significance of that word. Paul's saying, you're beloved. God loves you. You are the beloved of Christ. Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he's writing this letter to a church that he planted. And he says, don't forget, don't, don't, you know, you, you lived it in my presence, but how much more in my absence? Verse 13, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining, disputing or complaining. Do all things. How many things? Do everything without grumbling and complaining that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul is somewhat saying what Peter said. He said, be different from them, not better than. You're not better than them because we're all broken and need Jesus, but let them see the work of Christ in you. Don't be good as in like wearing a, a scout badge to show how people how awesome you are. It's not about that. It's saying, You've got the work of Christ, and then you live in, in humility, and you say, the only way I can live this way is Christ and the power of the Spirit within me. He says, among this crooked and twisted, among the, whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, 
so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul did not mind throwing a little bit of, almost a little bit of manipulation there at the end. I think that's a funny way to end that. He said, don't, I don't want to know, I don't want to have, have run this race in vain or labor in vain. I didn't want to have to come plant this church and then you guys are doing whatever you want to do. He said, live the way God has called you to live. It's not, again, about works unto salvation. It's called works because of salvation. Because God loves me, because I'm in relationship with him, I then live the way he wants me to live. Being lights. What he's saying here is not complaining reveals that we are children of God. When you have that urge, when it's happening, respond in a different spirit. Look at the children of Israel. Look at your own heart. And again, Proverbs 4.23, guard your hearts above all. Everything flows out of it. Guard your heart. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, we love you today. Thank you for the word of God. Help us to hold fast to the word of life, as Paul told the Philippians. God, check our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would guard our hearts. Lord, we want to repent for where we have blown it in these areas. God, where we've complained. Lord, where we've rebelled. Where we have justified disobedience. Where we've held you in contempt by the things that we have said. Lord, I pray, God, that when we find ourselves in this wilderness, in this wandering times, in these hard seasons, that we would hold fast to you. We would hold on to you. I think that the Lord wants to just encourage you with that today, that no matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, maybe it's a, you're in a short-term short kind of thing. There may be an ending in sight, but you're right now going through a very difficult season, or maybe you are in a long, hard season. It can be relational, physical, it can be financial and Seems like, you know, you, you try to make the right turn and you find yourself deeper. And, and God wants you to know he loves you. He cares about you. It's not wasted time. He can use it for his glory. He can speak to you. And yes, he will use it to help humble us, to make us more like Jesus. But don't, don't despise it. Don't complain in the middle of it. Don't begin to reject him but cling to him because he loves you because he can use all this for his glory and for, for, for to shine through you as a bright shining light and so Jesus we give you our hearts we ask God that we would guard our hearts today we would guard our hearts and that we would look to you and that we would live for you every day God we repent uh, for our bad attitudes and our complaining God show us Keep showing us and help us to respond to you in a right way. We love you. We honor you. I pray a blessing over your people today and this week in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you today. Have an awesome, awesome day.